Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast. I sound croaky today, don't I? The truth is, is I have been out like a light for the past three days. I have been super unwell. I don't know what I am going through, but literally life, Tulum, everything is kicking my ass and I have been down and out. It feels like every time I recover from something, something else hits me. It has just been like, (laughs) I want to say a really insanely intense few weeks, but it's actually been months, maybe even years at this point, like ever since moving to Tulum. It's been a journey, let's put it that way. I have grown so much. I have done so much self-work, but I've also been really, really sick. And I'm not really sure if that is living in a different country, which is weird because I've lived in a ton of different countries before. Not really sure what is going on. I eat so well. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't vape. I don't take drugs. I don't drink soda. Like, All those annoying things that I used to do that are like very delicious and awful for you, I honestly don't do. So the fact that I'm sick, I'm learning that it means something deeper is going on. Stress, energetics, whatever it is, I am still on the journey to finding out. But just wanted to apologize for my extra husky voice today. I wanted to just quickly intro this episode and say, I see you guys. I see your requests for a BPD episode. And the truth is, I never want to jump onto an episode until I have the right expert to bring to you. And now I found Maddie, who is a DBT expert, which is one of the key types of therapy to help with BPD. So she really is the perfect person to talk about this. We are in some aggressive scheduling to try and find a date that works for both of us inside of our crazy busy diaries, but I'm going to make it happen. I will bring it to you as soon as I can. I wanted to start with more of like an intro episode today, which was just starting on the spectrum of big emotions that so many of us feel, but so few of us talk about in day-to-day life. Now, you are not alone if you think sometimes you feel crazy, if you feel psycho, if you feel like life is so much easier for everyone else. You just don't think that other people truly experience the intensity of the emotions that you do. And if it sounds like I'm talking (laughs) about this from a place of knowing, it's because I've always been the one that has felt like I am too much. My emotional reactions are too big. I want to cry more than other people want to cry. And, you know, someone (laughs) even could like literally give me some criticism or some feedback and I'd like want a ball. In fact, I actually remember this one. Actually, no, I was about to say I remember this one time where I was with a client in New York and he made me cry in the middle of a cafe and I was like literally sobbing and I was going to be like, I'm so oversensitive. And then I realized that this man literally shouted at me very New York style. It was like savage. So sometimes we think, oh, I'm too sensitive. But the truth is, is what Maddie talks about in today's episode is you also have to ask, how's my environment? Is it validating or is it invalidating? And how was that when I was growing up? So if you've ever been told that you are too much, or if you've ever just felt like you're too much, or you've ever just felt like everything is easier for other people than it is for you, I want you to know that you are not alone. I am now in my 30s and I still find myself thinking, oh my goodness, why is this not easier? Why have I not learned to navigate my emotions more? Or just really like, why can life not just be easier on some days? Now I understand how privileged I am and how lucky I am to be able-bodied and in good health and so many other things. But the truth is that this episode, as well as things that I'm learning from Sarah in our Biology of Trauma episodes, 
are teaching me that some of us are just wired to be more sensitive. And that is something that our parents weren't taught, that we weren't taught. So we grow up wondering why some of us react so much more to things that other people aren't reacting to. On the flip side, we're also not taught that some people just shut down totally. So those people make us feel even more crazy. And I use the word crazy in inverted commas because that's often a self-labeling term, you know? Yeah, sometimes we might have been called crazy by other people. Oh my God, I don't know if you can hear the cat. Honestly, at this point, I need to get the cat a podcast of its own, the amount that it talks. It is crazy. Anyway, what I was saying is that if you have been called crazy by someone, by an ex, by a friend, by a friendship group, that shit stays with you for a fucking lifetime. And I know that I've had comments in my childhood from within my family unit that literally have burned me forever or people eye rolling when I've expressed emotion that truly, even as an adult, literally hurt me to my core. So if that's you, if you feel sensitive, if you feel overly sensitive, maybe this episode is going to shed some light on why that is. And I love how Maddie crosses so many different parts of like the bio, psycho, social altogether. I think it's so important. And other than that, if you enjoyed this, if you loved this, please let me know. Please share it with someone else who is sensitive because I believe that our sensitivity is truly our superpower. And the more that we talk about it to each other, the more we can realize we are less alone. Also, just a final little reminder that I have been self-funding this podcast for nearly three years now. I've poured my heart and my soul into it as well as my financial resources, as well as running the whole thing alongside my main job. If you want to support Open House, if you want to be able to give back so I can keep creating content, I can give you more, more and more. You can come and join our premium community where you get access to the most incredible community room where there are 450 amazing human beings in it. And you also get access to four to six bonus episodes every month, including my voice notes from Lou and a ton of therapy Q&As. There's also a back catalogue of literally like 20 to 25 therapy Q&A episodes already up there with me and Dr. Terry. You also get access to an Ask a Therapist room where you literally can ask Dr. Terry and Dr. Massimo anything. And on top of that, one day soon, we're going to start running ads on the podcast as well, just to help give back and manage the rising level of production costs that I'm sustaining at the moment. So if you're in the Open House Premium community, you are also going to get all episodes ad-free forever. All of that's linked in the show notes for you. And other than that, all we have left is to get into this episode. And I am so excited to share it with you. From one sensitive superwoman to another, I see you, I love you, and never, ever make yourself less sensitive for anyone else. Now, let's get into it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Open House Podcast with me, your host, Louise Rumble. The reason I'm chuckling is because I just said to my new guest, who you are going to meet any moment, oh my God, I just have to check that my microphone is on because I just had a small panic that I was about to record a whole episode that I know is going to be amazing. And my whole audio would have been silent. So it would have just been Maddie talking (laughs) to you guys, which I'm sure probably would have been like just as valuable as this episode is going to be. But yes, to introduce my new guest today, someone that has never been on the podcast before, I've got Maddie Elberger here with me today. She's a CBT and a DBT therapist and an adjunct professor. I can't even say that because it's not a term that we have in the UK. An adjunct professor at Columbia University, which is incredible. As someone from the United Kingdom, whenever we hear of anything to do with these like amazing schools in the States, we're always like, oh my God, that's so cool. One of my best friends is from LA and like I would go to LA and I'd be wearing like a vintage jumper that said like Indiana University. And my best friend was like, what the fuck are you wearing? And I was like, I thought it was so cool. (laughs) So yeah, Maddie is incredible. I've watched a ton of her TikToks. I've listened to her on other episodes out there. And most of all, I'm so excited to have a CBT and DBT therapist on the podcast. Today, what we're going to be talking about is how to handle and navigate those big, big emotions. Now, if you know what I'm talking about, you know this episode is going to be for you. Because if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm jealous. I'm honestly so envious if you don't feel those big, big emotions. I feel them. I have always felt them. They sometimes are honestly too much for me. Like, 
This week I've been hysterically crying over a street dog that we found and it had the worst skin condition and it was like bleeding and I just knew no one was going to help it and I was literally crying and my boyfriend was like oh my God, okay, we're going to have to sort this out. Otherwise, my girlfriend is never going to stop crying. So if you feel those big emotions, I feel them too. Therapy and understanding the nervous system has been a huge part of me, helped me to understand how to navigate those a little bit better. But I know that Maddie is the expert on this. So Maddie, hi, I am so happy to have you here. And maybe you could just start, like maybe by telling us a tiny bit about DBT therapy and what that actually is. First of all, I'm super excited to be here. Um, that was fun. I was like laughing, but I was muted, so you couldn't see me laughing. Well, you can see me laughing, but no one else can hear me laughing, but I was I was enjoying that. And yes, I, I relate. I get that. Okay, so DBT, this stands for Dialectical Behavior Therapy. I just think it's important. Some people are like, what's a DBT? And I'm like, well, let me tell you about it. So in a nutshell, if I were to explain, if I were to boil down DBT to one sentence, it would be a treatment to help folks who experience really big emotions understand, identify, manage, and effectively utilize their emotions, right? Because as you were saying before, big emotions can sometimes feel like a curse, right? And especially if you're a person who's grown up with a lot of big emotions and like difficulty describing those, explaining those, expressing those, except for when they get really, really intense. There are things that like learned behaviors, coping mechanisms that any human being engages in that just maybe aren't really effective. And so the whole idea of DBT is like a blueprint. It's the architecture to helping somebody take what they have, which is actually really special and lucky. Like being a sensitive person's kind of amazing if you can manage it, right? And take that like that general sense of warmth and intensity and utilize it in a way so that it doesn't get in the way of your life. Because if you're born like this, you don't automatically learn things in the same way that other folks do. So that's why you're here. That is such a great intro. Thank you so much. I think there's two things that I really sort of picked up on already in what you said. And the first one is the way that they can get in the way of your life. And I think it's so important that we touch upon that because it really can. They really can. We don't use words like, and sadly, some people can't see the video, so I'm doing them in inverted commas, but crazy and psycho, things like that. But we've all said it at some point. I just feel like I'm fucking crazy or he called me a psycho. She called me a psycho. I've had partners call me a psycho before and it's because, yeah, I've been like sobbing hysterically because, well, first of all, because I was in like a deeply abusive, toxic relationships. But that aside, because I was feeling such big emotions and I didn't know how to handle them. They didn't know how to handle them. And I think that brings me to my second point, which is you said we're not often taught to describe them. And I think that is something that is so fascinating and it's something that I'm also learning on my own journey right now, like as a 30 something year old woman is that I have an autistic father, like he's on the spectrum. Like, of course I was never gonna be able to be taught how to experience my emotions because this lovely, lovely, lovely man who I love dearly and I just always feel so much guilt even telling this story, he didn't know how to regulate his own emotions because he didn't feel them in the same way that potentially people who were neurotypical did, et cetera, et cetera. So I love that understanding that we're just not taught to describe them in childhood. And I think starting in childhood is such a great place. I think people think I'm like the secret Freud because I'm always like, let's take this back to childhood. But for me, it's just made so much sense when I went to therapy and started taking things back to childhood. So I'd love from your perspective, from like a DBT standpoint, also a CBT standpoint, I guess from every standpoint, how do these big emotions tie back to childhood? Are they actually something that like we're born with? Do you think they can be changed dependent on like how our parents were with emotions, how they spoke to us with emotions. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I'm actually really glad you asked this and I'm glad for several reasons. So this is gonna be a long response and it's gonna be a really thorough response. I'm super passionate about this. And there's oftentimes this really, in my opinion, just unfortunate mistake that in CBT and DBT and behaviors and we don't care about your childhood, we don't talk about your childhood, it doesn't matter. And it's just not true. And so I am actually really glad that I get to talk about how we marry insight and childhood and learning into 
behavioral treatment, which is very present tense oriented, because I just think it's so important. It's just not so one note. So this is like my little soapbox. I'm so glad I get an opportunity to talk about the depth in which we actually do treat people because it's not just a set of skills, right? We have to understand childhood. It's just much more sensitive. So there are three typical points to what this idea of emotion vulnerability from a biological perspective sounds like. And you'll tell me if you relate to these. I definitely do. So somebody with this biological basis has high sensitivity, which means, like I said before, like your amygdala just reacts to a much lighter stimulus. Think like Princess in the Pea, like she felt the pea, right? People who have emotion vulnerability from a biological perspective, like feel the pea, right? Things that don't bother other people tend to bother people with big emotions, okay? So that's high sensitivity. High reactivity is that not only do you get bothered by it, but you go zero to 100. There actually is a biological basis for like your experience of the intensity of the emotion, of the intensity of the stimulus is much stronger. And the third piece, like the third touchstone is something called a slow return to baseline. And this is so important because what this means is that, okay, let's say like me, Maddie Elberger, my baseline is 50, okay? I'm definitely, by the way, a big emotion person, which is why I'm good at this treatment because I really believe in it and I live it. But so me, Maddie Elberger, my baseline is 50, whatever the hell that means. When I'm not dysregulated, when something's not bothering me, I'm at 50. However, because I have high sensitivity and high reactivity, I'm communicating with somebody and I have an expectation that they're going to say something to me or text me and I don't hear from this individual, right? And I automatically get dysregulated, right? Because high sensitivity, high reactivity, I go into the narrative in my head of there's something wrong, this person doesn't want to be interested in me, yada, yada, yada. And so I shoot up to like a 90, right? Because I have high reactivity. And because I have a slow return to baseline, my brain doesn't really have time to re-regulate back down to that 50 because the next stimuli will come along and my high sensitivity will react to it. My high reactivity will bounce it back up. So somebody who experiences this neurological, what we call emotion vulnerability, is really always operating much higher than their baseline. There's just no time to go back to baseline because the break, your amygdala is so sensitive and so reactive and it doesn't go back down as quick as others. So that's the biological piece, okay? Also, by the way, important to note that like, Obviously, since this is a biological thing, there is a hereditary factor to this, right? So even if you feel like the emotional black sheep of your family, look backwards and find that sensitive aunt or the great grandmother who had a hard time managing herself, right? So you'll find other people once you understand what's going on. I think that's important because a lot of times people with big emotions or people with borderline personality disorder or whatever it is feel very alone, like very isolated because they're basically meant to feel like what the hell is wrong with you like why do you care so much about everything and it's just not the reality it's the you know other people have been swept under the rug so speaking of right we have this biological vulnerability that alone is not the problem okay no one thing alone becomes problematic what we are looking at is a transaction between the invalidating environment and so we have bio social and the social focuses on the invalidating environment and I love everything about DBT, but I love talking about the invalidating environment because it so often mistakenly gets labeled as like, your emotions are wrong. I know that probably most of my patients, I can think back to myself, my friends, I'm curious to hear from you also, like people weren't going around being like, you're wrong. It's not like people are going around saying like, you shouldn't feel that way. Sometimes, sometimes it comes out like that. Most of the time, what the invalidating environment looks and sounds like is somebody who cares about us and their inability to tolerate our reactions and our emotions. And so instead of being like, oh, I, I actually see where you're coming from. I get it. Like, I actually, that does make sense that you're upset. It does make sense that you're crying about the dog because that's actually objectively sad. And if you care about animals, that's sad, right? So instead of that, it often comes along with like, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. The dog will be fine. It's not a big deal, right? So that's like providing reassurance or like oversimplifying the problem. So like, well, you know, if you just do X, Y, and Z, then the dog will get better. So again, like, oversimplification and problem solving in place of the actual individual. So saying, oh, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z so you don't feel this way. And all of these things, they are all done with really good intention. Like parents, friends, partners, teachers, like religious leaders, whoever the heck, it doesn't matter who it is, but there's this resounding message that you're not okay if you feel this way. There's something wrong. And 
it's not necessarily true and it's not actually a reflection oftentimes of what the people in your environment think. It's a reflection of their lack of capacity to understand how to sit with that. And that's okay. This is why this treatment exists and it is the best treatment in the world because it, it also teaches everyone. It's not just the patient's responsibility to change. It's also the patient's responsibility to educate the important people in their environment and be a part of that process. And so Again, this repeated message of like, you basically shouldn't feel this way. It's because we need to take the emotion away from you so that you don't continue to feel this way. It results in what I like to call demagnetizes your internal compass of your ability to understand what you're feeling, how much you're feeling it, what it's like pulling you to do. Because you eventually just learn that you can't really experience that or share that emotion because it's going to be somehow rejecting and shamed unintentionally. And that's where a lot of coping mechanisms that like are impulsive come from. It comes from the immediate need for feeling something and needing to shut it down based on this learned behavior of the transaction between really big emotions and an environment that just can't tolerate them. The reason that I'm smiling like a Cheshire cat is because you honestly, like, I don't even know where to go from here because you have just said so many things that I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God that like yes 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 so I already wanted to say like thank you so much even if we ended the episode right here I feel like people would be like wow yes so thank you already I feel a bit emotional because like I feel seen and heard by you so I know that thousands of other people are going to as well because I know that a lot of the listeners of the podcast are big big feelers so I think the first thing that I want to... make me cry, by the way. If you can't see something, you're going to make me cry. That's okay. We can cry. We like crying around here. (laughs) So I think one of the first things, more boring before we get into the juicy things is I just love how this approach like ties in like the biosocial, right? Because a huge part of my driver with open house is helping people step outside of just the psychological space in terms of helping them to understand what's going on biologically, neurobiologically, in the family unit, nature, nurture. Like I think the future of where we're going in the world of healing people is not just the psychological there is so much more to it so I love I love that and getting into the biological first of all like the way that you broke that down into the three stages like the high sensitivity the high reactivity and the like slow return to baseline I was like oh my god that explains it anxious attachment that is how this podcast blew up I know so many people listening will be like yeah that's me we have that high sensitivity we always say you feel the shift in the energy literally it might be energy over text energy over anything energy in person you feel that shift, you have a higher sensitivity to it where someone like who isn't more biologically sensitive or more emotionally vulnerable just wouldn't feel it. Like we feel it. Then we have the high reactivity because we're already on edge, like you said. Yeah. And then we have the slow return to baseline because when something happens, like you said, you're going through it now. And I hate that for you because I recently had a friendship breakdown, like, and it wasn't a bad one. It wasn't a toxic one. It just for whatever reason, we had to go our own separate ways. That sounds very vague. Like you, I can't really share it on here. It's probably not the time right now to share the story. One day I will when probably I'm in a place to be able to share that. Um, And I just felt it. Like every time she didn't text me back, she didn't pick up my FaceTime call. I was just so highly sensitive to like, I wish you would just tell me the truth of what was going on. You then gaslight yourself into being like, no, it's nothing. I'm being too sensitive. Like, what the fuck am I doing? But then also you're like, no, I feel it. I feel the shift. And you talk to other people who maybe are less sensitive and they're like, no, I'm sure it's nothing wrong. I'm sure she's just busy. I'm sure she's got a kid. I'm sure this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't get it. Like normally she would not do what she's doing and I can feel it. So I know you've got something to say on that and I'll hand over to you in a second. But just to finish these three points, like that high sensitivity, high reactivity and slow return to baseline. For me, I love how you delivered that. I think you're already going to help validate so many people's experiences around just being a sensitive person. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like I said, I am a big emotion person. I'm also like a little all over the place right now, which is totally okay. I know that about myself. I know like kind of my vulnerability, but I'm happy to share it because that's kind of the point. And we do that in DBT all the time as therapists. But like the whole reason I started this 
professional Instagram was because I just really feel like there's so much information out on the internet that is just really reductive and it doesn't actually provide people with an understanding of what's happening to them and why. And so just to hear you say that you feel really validated by that and that you think it's going to validate other people is really, it touches me. So like, I appreciate that. And that's kind you of- can, You can cry if we want. We could all just cry together. <laughs> gonna sob because that's me and yeah like to your point having high sensitivity and you know having emotional vulnerability yes you do feel the shifts and sometimes where we get ourselves into trouble is making an assumption about what that shift means right and at the same time it's never helpful ever when someone's like it's not a big deal because it is somebody can say it i understand why this feels a big deal and you don't know all the facts yet so like can we pull back do you want to ask questions like whatever right but To just dismiss somebody because you don't want them to get upset is like really just the ultimate invalidation. And that's not the way we actually want to handle the people in our lives that we love, regardless of how big their emotions are. Yeah, I think that kind of brings us to the second point, which is like the social, which you were talking about, which is that you can have this invalidating environment. Sometimes it can be active. So I'm sure a lot of people listening like will have been like actively shamed for their emotions when they were a child. Stop crying, like big boys don't cry, like girls stop crying, whatever it was. But also, like Maddie said, it can also be basically like a subconscious or an unconscious or all of the weight of the unsaid that we're carrying, which is where it's you as a young person, even when you're not aware of it, you see how those emotions cause the people around you to react. And you're logging those responses, the changes in body language, the fact that that person leaves the room. And I think one of the things that I'm so fascinated by is how so many of these things get laid and wired before we're even consciously aware of them as adults. So I think it's also such a good question you'll be a better person to guide on like how to ask this question but around asking yourself like did my caregivers hold space for my feelings and for my emotions like I put out a TikTok last week that literally blew up and I think I said something like I've only just realized that I grew up in a childhood where I was never asked what is coming up for you and how can I make this better for you it's that two-step piece between like what are you feeling and what can we do about it and because I never had that, then in adulthood, I just feel like I have all these big emotions. I don't know what to do with them. I used to suppress them. I can't suppress them. I always used to say it's like a tsunami out of my eyes. Like, if I'm going to cry, I'm going to fucking cry. Like, there's no way that I can suppress it. It's just like, it's going to come. And then the second thing is, is like, I often didn't have people that would ask me like, okay, solution led with compassion. What can we do about this? So you feel like you're alone in the feeling part because it's so overwhelming. And then you feel like you're alone in the solution part you feel like you have to find solutions for it yourself you have to suppress it you just have to handle it on your own that's how I've felt my whole entire life and I've grown up in a family where my brother and my father are quite suppressed emotionally and my mother is the opposite she's very like out of frustration she's very vocal and and like that so I never really was raised in a calm space where anyone would say why are you crying? Like, I love you. It's okay to cry. Let it out. What are you feeling? What's happened? And what can we do about this? So I think, is that a good place to start for people to basically like look at their family unit, look at their caregivers and basically just ask, was I ever asked those questions? Like, how was I treated when I would cry or shout? Like, is that a starting point? Absolutely. I think that it takes time to get there. I think that when most of my patients come into treatment, there's just such a rejection of themselves. It's not automatic to be like, well, maybe it's not me. And or other side of that is, is it's not automatic to then also be like, this is everyone else's fault. And so to be able to get to the place where it was like, well, what actually happened? And how did that hurt me even if it wasn't intended to? That's the goal of treatment, right? That's really a dialectic, if you will, right? This, this hurt me this was invalidating to me, even if it wasn't intended to. At the same time, those things are both true. I have a chaotic mother who I'm sure will listen to this and be very pissed at me. And it's true. Big, big, big emotions. And so there isn't a lot of space, actually more now than when I was a kid, for like feedback or reaction. And so if I were coming into treatment at the very beginning of treatment, I might just be very angry with my mother because there was just like never any room and I wouldn't want to think about any way to change or accept or do anything or alternatively I would just have a lot of my own self-hatred because like why did I bring this on myself so ultimately the goal is we want to get 
to where what you just said is, which is what actually did happen? How do I understand this transaction for myself? And actually in DBT, in group, we do take a moment to like journal on that and think about that because it's really important. Like, how did I get here? I'm going to take us off on a tiny bit of a tangent here because there's something that you've just said, which is fascinating for me. So I'm incredibly close with my mother. I would say that I was angry with her as well when I was younger. I think we've done a lot of self-work. She's also done a lot of self-work therapy, spiritual, you name it. Like I'm proud of her. Our relationship is better than it's ever been. But I have a friend and I've just been talking about this recently. And she just said to me, she just exploded at her mum, and she had never done that before. And she just realized she was so angry at her mother. And she's like a 33 year old woman that it took her 33 years of her life to realize that the whole time she was suppressed and just like taking it, living in the environment of, you know, her mom wasn't like even super erratic. Her mom was just like, there was a lot going on, a lot emotionally, like big emotions. And my friend is the opposite. She doesn't cry, like basically the total opposite of me. And I just think that was so fascinating how she basically said like, yeah, she just had this breakdown one day and she just realized for the first time ever, she was so angry at her mum. And I think we all have it. Some of us have it with our father. Some of us have it with our mother. A lot of us have it with both. People always say to me, oh, but I have the mother wound and the father wound. I'm like, honey, we all fucking have both of them. So (laughs) don't you worry about that. Like you are not alone. But I'd love it if you could just explain that piece like a tiny bit further, like how you can actually be really angry at your mother if you grew up in a space where she had big emotions. Sure. I'm about to get like kind of complicated because We often think about like what's the primary emotion and what's the secondary emotion. So oftentimes anger is a secondary emotion, meaning it's a reaction to another emotion that tends to be more difficult for an individual to tolerate for whatever reason. And so really when you get into it, you want to look at like what's underneath the anger. The anger is what's being expressed and there's validity to it. Like anger anthropologically is like someone did something wrong to me. And so again, if the ultimate outcome is that there was not enough space for like reasonable expression or validation of your emotions, anger is valid and real and there's something underneath that. And so I actually think, right, if we think about why we get angry with a parent who does their best and provides for us and yet doesn't feel like they're giving us what we need, it's actually oftentimes sadness. I think it's a combination of anger and sadness, which is what I would define as hurt. I define hurt as anger and sadness combined together because it's not just this person did something wrong to me, but I also didn't have something that I was supposed to have. Like it's loss, right? So sadness is I lost something or something left, you know? And so ultimately, You get angry because that's powerful, right? It's much easier to communicate and particularly safer if you were in an environment where sad emotions weren't expressed or were like really kind of just shut down. But it's really also, it's sad. It's really sad. It's like really, and I talk to patients about this all the time, this idea of radical acceptance of you might have a wonderful mother or a wonderful father or a fabulous grandparent who raised you and they love you so much and they just can't meet you emotionally where you are. They just can't. And you can love them and they can love you and at the same time still not be able to give you that and you can still mourn that and still love them and have a relationship with them. And I think it's really important when we talk about the anger to really ask ourselves what's underneath that. Yeah, I love that about your definition of hurt. I think that is such an important point. And I also love the point around how sometimes you need to accept that, like you said, your parents or your caregivers or your friends or your whatever it is. I was going to say your partner, but that's a whole different thing because you can choose your partner, whereas you can't choose your family. There is an acknowledgement that they might never be able to meet you where you are emotionally. I think that is a really hard part of the healing journey is people come into the healing journey from what I've seen thinking like, okay, when I do all this work, they're going to be able to love me in the way that they were meant to. They're going to be able to communicate with me in the way that they were meant to. And more often than not, that's absolutely not what's going to happen unless they are actively doing the work as well. And I think particularly with caregivers and people in the older generations, you know, they're just in a totally different generation. Therapy is becoming so fucking cool and I'm obsessed with it. Obviously, it's my life, it's your life. That makes me so happy, but you just still have to speak to the generation above and it's no, they are not where we are at in terms of working through these. And I think I wanted to also kind of flip this discussion on its head slightly. You said something about sometimes we don't feel the anger and we've spoken already today about like suppressing. And 
I think one of the things that I struggle with the most is that I am so sensitive. I am very in touch with my body and my emotions. And I was very angry when I was a kid. I've been very angry in past relationships. And now you're helping me even with your definition of hurt to understand why that is. But one of the things I find hardest is that it seems like everyone else finds it so easy. It seems like no one else feels in the way that I feel. So first of all, I feel validated having this discussion with you because I'm like, I need Maddie to be my friend because I think she would get it like with when I'm feeling things because she also feels that way. But secondly, I think that there's this other end of the spectrum, which is like the disconnection, the disassociation. And what I've learned the more work that I do is like, sometimes people aren't just not feeling because they're in a nice baseline where things kind of come and go and wash over them and they come back to equilibrium and their nervous system is resilient and shifts between the different states it's supposed to be in. Actually, a lot of people are not feeling in the way that we are because they are totally disconnected and disassociated. And It's something that I could never really acknowledge until I had a boyfriend who was so deeply disassociated through the horrendous trauma that he had gone through as a child that had sustained into adulthood that I started to see, oh my goodness, there's another end of the spectrum from who I am. And I'd love it if we could just take it all the way back to the other end of the spectrum because maybe some people are listening to this and they're not sensitive. Maybe they are more of the avoidant, the disassociative, the disconnected, or maybe someone is dealing with a partner, a caregiver, a friend who is on the other end of the spectrum. I'd love to just learn from your perspective how DBT, how I guess you don't treat them in DBT because DBT is more for the our end of the spectrum and the personality disorders. Am I right? Am I wrong? Tell me. So, so... Common myth is that people with really big emotions are always like tend to be explosive or impulsive. However, your point to there is another side of the spectrum is absolutely 100% true. The other side of getting rid of an emotion when it's not an impulsive behavior like self-harm or impulsive texting me. (laughs) The other side of that is completely shutting down. It's complete and total shutdown. Like literal, like the not literally, but kind of literally the life goes out of somebody's eyes and it's like they're just not there anymore and so it's harder to identify that those people are really big emotion people they are also big emotion people they have just never coming anywhere close to that emotion is like a fire and you can't touch it and at the same time the skills that we learn in dbt and the way in which we relate to our therapists and the whole shebang if you will be just as effective for somebody who is a shutter downer and a restrictor as somebody who is an expressor and an exploder and actually to take it a step further i'm just starting to get into a newer realm of dbt called rodbt which is radically open dbt and that's for people who are particularly, particularly rigid and repressed. So people who suffer with anorexia, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, kind of like another end of really big feeling that looks incredibly different from what we're used to seeing. And so there even actually is like a furthering research and treatment within DBT about how do we really, really get these folks with what they need. And in its name, Radically Open, it's that the idea is how do we teach people to learn to be like accepting with themselves and open with themselves. That is so fascinating because my boyfriend actually fits in that category. Sometimes I'm like, I'm there, I'm crying about the street dog. And I have sometimes said to him, I just don't understand. Like, how are you not crying about this too? Like the dog's bleeding and it's no one's going to help it. And it's going to live like that until it dies. And he explained to me, he's like, what you don't understand, my love, is I have huge feelings too. It's just that I don't express them in the way that you do because they are so overwhelming for me that I just shut them down. And even though I can't relate to that because I've literally never been able to shut down an emotion in the history of my entire fucking existence, he has started to teach me that there is a spectrum. We started this discussion by saying, okay, hypersensitive, one end of the spectrum. We then spoke about the other end, like the total disconnect and disassociated. What you're helping me realize is like there's so many different parts of this spectrum and different reasons that people shut things down. Maybe they didn't feel safe. Maybe they were scorned or punished for feeling those emotions. Maybe they just physically were never shown or learned how to do that. So they just suppress, suppress, suppress. I also love your reference to substance abuse and eating disorders because... It's something that we haven't actually got into too much on the podcast and maybe we could do that together at some point. I would love to do that because 
I think the more and more that I've learned, and particularly through my work with Gabor Mate, who I'm sure you're very, very familiar with, he basically just says that we are all going through so much pain that our nervous system can't handle, and we're all just learning to try and control it in some way possible. And that might be self-soothing for someone who is the drug addict, the alcoholic, the recreational drug user, the exerciser, the smoker, the binge eater, binge Netflixer, whatever it is, the masturbator, the sexer, that's not a word, the sexer, all of these things, like they're all ultimately helping you distract from or deal with big feelings. And then I love how you also reference like the control thing. Like I know people that have suffered with eating disorders and it's not surprising for me that they went through a huge trauma in their childhood or prior to that happening. And now they're just trying to control the uncontrollable because life was uncontrollable for them at some point. So I guess my question for you is wherever you are on this spectrum, there's a lot of similarities underneath it all. And I think that as we start to acknowledge, okay, we all have these emotions and we all handle them differently. My question for you is when we do start to feel them coming up, how does DBT kind of help you or advise you or where in your practice do you take people in terms of skill sets and solutions and tools to help to sit in that space of such insane discomfort so we can learn to be in the middle rather than jumping all the way over to the coping mechanisms or the control? You ask really, really great questions, which is like reflective of your own insight, I think. Whatever work you've done, whoever you've been seeing, you should tell that therapist, like, way to fucking go, because <laughs> they're asking Thank the right you. questions. <laughs> There's so many things to say about what you're saying. And I think, so just as a brief overview, right? So DBT, there are four sets of skills that correspond to areas of skill deficit or areas that people with big emotions or people with borderline personality disorder tend to just have never learned right? It just was never learned, never modeled, never explained. And those are mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness, right? Because if we think about big emotions, they get in the way of our ability to sit still, right? To like literally to pause. They get in the way of our ability to not engage in ineffective coping or over control. They get in the way of our ability to really just feel like we are in the driver's seat of our life. And they get in the way of our relationships, Right. And so we have four sets of skills that relate to that. But to the point of your question, everything we do in DBT is couched in the concept of mindfulness. Right. The concept of mindfulness in DBT is not necessarily meditation and it does not mean calm. Right. Because that's actually invalidating. You don't have to be calm to be able to enter that middle zone. You don't have to be calm to be able to tolerate distress. That's actually not true. And that's a resounding message that we get sent all the time, which is just wrong. <laughs> I am not a calm person and I know how to handle distress, like some of the time at least. It's this idea in DBT, mindfulness is focused awareness. Okay. And I had a supervisor once explain that to me like 10 years ago and it's really stuck with me. It's this idea that focused awareness is in any moment, do I know? What's pulling at me? So can I identify the feelings physiologically? Can I identify the, can I name the emotion? Can I identify and describe the thoughts? And can I then put that all together to understand where my body is pulling me to respond? We call it an urge in DBT or an action urge. And we have all of that going on and mindfulness practice itself teaches us how to refocus. So meaning how to not get stuck in the loop, how to bring ourselves away from what's happening in our mind, which is often past or future, right? And to bring ourselves directly and singularly onto something else, right? And so focused awareness, it's building up a muscle of first knowing that you're having an experience and then choosing to refocus your mind, which is not a zero sum game. It's not, I do this one time and now I'm not gonna be upset for the next hour, even though someone just fucking broke up with me or less extreme than that. But like, you know, didn't answer my text and I thought they were going to and now I'm spiraling. So it's a practice and that's the thing about skills and that's the thing about DBT and that's the thing that I say all the time is you're not coming to therapy to feel less, you're not coming to therapy to feel better, you're coming to therapy to be able to feel anything and to move within like your world in a way that you want to move, right? And so if we couch everything in mindfulness, if we couch everything in the capacity to know what's happening and the capacity to do our best to bring ourselves into something else, like in the respect that doesn't serve us, that gives us options to do anything else. So there's no skill use. There's no, what do I do next until you know what's happening and you can take a moment to pause, 
right? And so what do we do? Like this is, that's just general, but in specifically in DBT, we always want to ask ourselves, what does wise mind ask of us, right? What is wise mind saying to us? And wise mind is the combination, not 50, 50, it's different every time of our emotions and our logic. Okay. We cannot make a wise minded decision without both emotions and logic because they're both giving us really important information about our short and long-term goals and our response in the moment and what's important to us. And so when we're making decisions, when we're in significant discomfort and we're learning how to tolerate that, what does that mean? That means pausing long enough to understand each side, right? What are my emotions saying to me? What is my, what's logic? What are the facts of the situation? And then coming up with solutions. And I say solutions because it's very important that we don't get tunnel visions into one specific solution, right? Because if that fails us, there's this false sense of now I'm screwed, which is not true. There's often many different paths to get to the same results, even if it's not the path we thought we wanted to take. So you come up with several solutions that honor the essence or what each side of your brain is asking of you. And that often will help you not feel better necessarily and do the thing that's in line with your goal, like what's most important to you. And so the more you do that, the more you practice that pause and then utilize the skills in whatever solution you come up with, the less afraid your body and your brain become of the distress at all. Doesn't mean you like distress. I fucking hate distress. I hate it. Like I hate feeling anxious. I hate feeling shame. I don't enjoy those things. And I know that sometimes if, if I react the way that emotion mind is telling me to react, I will end up compounding that. And so I'm better off doing the thing that's maybe harder for me and slower for me because that's actually going to feel better to me in the long term. I love this point around the pause. Like I found the pause to be maybe one of the most critical things that I have ever learned on my therapy journey in the last few years. And the reason for that is, and if we just tie back to the beginning of the episode, we talked about the emotional hijacking, the amygdala hijack and the sensitivity and the reactivity. Now, hopefully you guys listening understand that you can understand why your body goes zero to a hundred. Like it's a biological response, right? And that's going to keep happening until you try to like basically tell your body that we can do this differently. And I think the only way that I have been able to even start to do that process is through that concept of the pause. Like, I love the pause. I also love what you said about how it's never going to feel good. Like doing this work is never going to be like, okay, amazing. He, she hasn't texted me back and my brain is throwing me all these stories and I'm just going to sit here and I'm just going to be so relaxed and I'm just going to be so calm and whatever. But I do want to tell you guys that like you really can get to a point where if you practice this enough, it really can start to change the way that you respond to situations. I have seen it myself with an anxious attachment style, being in a long distance relationship, being very aware of like, okay, he didn't text me back. He said he was going to do this. And now I've woken up and he went to bed and he went out and he didn't text me. That used to make me spiral. Like I'd wake up and it would just be like, I'd have to wait for him to wake up and I'd be all over the place. Whereas as a result of doing this work and acknowledging my own cycles and my own sensitivity and the patterns and then taking a pause and practicing it repeatedly, 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 I truly now am at a space where, and actually I saw my best friend from LA recently and I haven't seen her for years because of the pandemic. She just commented, she was like, you are calmer than you've ever been. And she's not the first person to say that to me. And I'm not an inherently calm person, but people are starting to comment on just an essence of calmness that is within me. And I mean, my boyfriend is the most calm person in the history of the world. And I think I've learned a lot of that from him. He has helped me to give myself the pause without needing a big reaction. So I wanted to ask you, I guess, as one of our like wrap up points, even though there is so much more for us to talk about, you talk about like radical openness, radical acceptance. And I'm in a relationship where all of my big emotions, there's space for them and he can hold space for them. He doesn't judge me. He doesn't shame me. It's everything that I needed right now. It's everything that I needed as a child. It was everything I needed when I was dating men that would shame me for anything. He has been a huge part of my healing journey, but also the healing really has come from myself like people always say oh if I just find a nice guy a nice girl like these big emotions won't be an issue anymore because it's all the fuck boys and the fuck girls that are triggering these emotions what are your thoughts on that because I feel like it's a two-step approach like the work starts with you and your partner choice can help heal or hurt you what are your thoughts the bottom line is and this is what I talk about all the time we are the only things we can control 
my thoughts, my emotions, my my body sensations and my behavior is the only thing that is 100% in my hands, right? And so if we understand that, then we find a partner who can complement that, but we can't expect them to take responsibility for that, right? And so to your point, wherever people are on their journey for relationships, whether they be friendships or intimate partner relationships or family relationships, like we can absolutely get ourselves into situations when we are not aware that this is what's like happening to us. And this is, we're filling some sort of hole that actually we need to learn to fill ourselves. But yeah, like you're going to get into the relationship with the person who's going to be rejecting of you if that's what you're used to, right? If that's what love and connection and intention has felt like, then like, why would you do anything differently? And you're going to continue to be miserable and you'll probably blame yourself. It's not just you and you have a role in being able to do that differently. And so finding the person who maybe isn't going to be rejecting and yet will still give you feedback, right? So we in DBT, we don't do zero sum game, right? And I'm sure your boyfriend actually gave you feedback. You said that when you asked, like, how are you not upset about this? And he's like, I am. I don't show it in the same way as you. I actually feel a lot. And that's my stuff. That's my thing, right? That's feedback. That's not somebody who's going to be like, you're being ridiculous. Don't ask me if I care because we're not talking about me. And that's not somebody who's going to overly feed into the narrative that's potentially emotionally hijacking you. But you have to have your own level of awareness and, like I said, radical acceptance of the fact that you actually hold the keys to your own life. And so if somebody's not treating you well from an anxious attachment perspective, you can go. That feels like the most that I have yet to experience that in a relationship where I'm like, I can go. Seriously, and like, that's my stuff, but I know it's there. And so what I'm working on now is finding partners who aren't gonna make me know that I have to go and still not be able to get myself there. But to your point, it is absolutely a two-way street. We never wanna put all of the control of our worth or our validity into someone else's hands. That's danger zone, right? We never wanna give that up. That is so fascinating about what you said around, I can go. And I think so many people listening to this, particularly the anxiously attached, will really relate to that because I have stayed in so many relationships way, way longer than I ever should have. I shouldn't have even entered into them in the first place. And I think that this ownership of our feelings is like the empowered step towards I can go because when you start to come back into yourself and you start to come back into your body, which sounds like such an abstract concept before you start to step into the, I guess, more biological and nervous system space, when you are safely grounded in your body, you almost have yourself as your best friend, right? You're like, I'm never actually going to be alone because like this body, this physical body right here, it's not going anywhere. And you kind of learn like, okay, I'm okay. I can do this. Like I am going to be okay in ways that like before you do the work, you just honestly think that person's threatens to leave. Life is fucking over. You'll be on the bedroom floor screaming. Don't go. Don't leave me. Texting them, calling me, et cetera, et cetera. I also think if we flip this on the reverse, because I am aware that sometimes I tailor these episodes too much to the highly sensitive, anxiously attached rather than the highly sensitive, avoidantly attached, et cetera, et cetera, is that if we flip that statement, it's also okay to stay for those individuals who want to run away. And it's about us all finding that level of tolerance within discomfort. And I think that for me is it is probably the biggest takeaway from today is like it's taking a step forward into learning how to be okay in discomfort but it has to be safe discomfort it has to be loving discomfort like discomfort that you are there because you know it is taking you towards the future version of you the more grounded version of you the more stable version of you not like Maddie just said you're staying or like I just said because you're staying because you literally can't leave And vice versa, and I want the avoidantly attached and the people that are more prone to disassociation and disconnection to also be able to step into that space of, it's okay that I stay, not because someone's forcing you, not because your anxiously attached partner is forcing you to share your emotions, but because you have come to the conclusion that being able to feel your emotions in your body and share them with someone else is going to take you one step forward to true intimacy. I've got goosebumps. Because the truth is, so many of us like block true healthy love because of all the cycles and the programs that we are running. And I think that what you have taught me today is that 
It's not to shame ourselves for those cycles. It's not to condemn ourselves for those cycles. We all have them. They all end differently. We all cope with them differently. It's about acknowledging that, yes, we might be a more sensitive person. Someone else might be more sensitive and they deal with it differently. But we're not alone. And yes, we might have experienced invalidating environments, but we can build validating environments. You know, Maddie talked about giving feedback. You can build safe environments with your friends who give you feedback, with a partner who gives you feedback. But ultimately, you can build a safe environment with yourself where you give yourself feedback because we're always focusing out on other people. And I think a big part of me learning to manage my big emotions has always been coming back to now understanding that this wound, it's in me. That person, they're just a flashlight into like the wound that I am holding internally. So I guess my question for you is like, I'm sure there's a million things that we haven't touched upon, but as like a final point, where do you want to go? Is there anything we haven't spoken about? I know we didn't even touch on BPD, so we might have to get you back for another episode on that because we have people in the house, our community room, they have that diagnosis. I also have people messaging me saying, please do BPD, please do BPD. And I always joke and say, honestly, the only thing I know about BPD is from Pete Davidson. Everything I know about, P- about BPD, I've learned from Pete Davidson. So I think maybe we need to do an episode on BPD with Maddie Elberger. But yeah, is there anything, I guess, within the remit of like managing these big, big emotions emotions that you feel like we haven't spoken about as we wrap up today's episode yeah I'm gonna give a couple of my like kind of things that I Maddieisms I like to say which like all my patients laugh at me for being like so chuggy but I'm like yo guys I'm just a fucking non-millennial so like sorry like I'm chuggy but there's a couple of different things that I want to leave people with that are really really important number one is that you can feel two opposing things at the same time. Somebody can have an opposite view of than you. It does not make your view any less true and it does not make their view any less true, right? And so this idea of a dialectic in general, which is why we say could instead of should because there's no one right way, why we come up with multiple solutions for wise mind because there's always another side. And just like remember that, right? So especially in regulating your emotions when you're going into a spiral, there's just there's always another side to this. And as to your point, you actually can and will learn how to carry yourself through that. You can. It is possible. And on top of that point, the biggest mistake that we as human beings make is that we give up change way too soon because we're all expecting it to be fucking overnight like that. It took me 34 years to get here and now two weeks of therapy or a month of therapy and I'm going to be behaving totally differently. And that's really not true, right? It takes two to three weeks of consistent robotic behavior to actually make a new habit and nobody's a robot. We're not AI. I fucking hate AI. AI is trying to ruin my career. No. But yeah, like you... It takes so much time. And if something is really aversive, to your point, like the idea in a relationship that how can I be myself and not be rejected for it? So how could I be more vulnerable and intimate and not feel like I need to run away? Or how can I be more vulnerable and intimate and not feel like the other person's going to run away? Learning that is really hard. And accepting that on the other side of the dialectic, that you're going to still feel uncomfortable and that doesn't mean that it's dangerous is hugely important. So if you're working towards something, and I really believe in goals, Like have in mind what you're looking for. Be able to describe it to yourself as if you can see it so that you know how to take steps there. Stick with it. Stick with DBT is a year long. It takes one full year to get through the protocol, right? That says something. It's a full year long protocol. And so it's just not forgetting that there's always more than one way that you actually can learn it. You can accept it. And if you keep at it, you'll get there. It might look different than what you thought like it was going to look. It might feel different. It might take longer or shorter and you'll get there. You can get there. And like, that's, I think, what the beauty of this treatment is. It gives you the opportunity to have a life really worth living. You're right. That is the perfect place to end. I think sometimes people get frustrated that they do two therapy sessions and they listen to two podcast episodes and they're frustrated that they're still dating the same guy or girl and they're still having the same reactions. And I always say to people that message me saying that, I say, well, you know, how many years did it take your brain and nervous system to be wired and be shaped, yet we expect it to change overnight? Like, it's just literally not how it works. You don't learn Mandarin overnight. You don't don't learn Italian overnight. Like, anything you're trying to learn, it takes time, it takes consistency, and it's fucking hard. Like, I've lived in Mexico for a year and a half. 
do I speak Spanish? No, I don't. Everyone's like, you should just learn Spanish. I'm like, I know I should. My boyfriend literally also says like, babe, everything would just be easier if you learn Spanish. And I'm like, I don't have the time. I'm so busy. I work all the time. I'm stressed. Blah, 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 blah. And they're like, they're just excuses. Yeah, I should just sit down and do the fucking work. The problem for me is that I'm doing so much fucking work everywhere else in my life that it feels like another like thing for me to do. But the thing is, let's like look at that. What am I working on? I am working on the self-work. I'm working on the therapy. I'm working on the stuff that I'm so passionate about changing. I am a million times more passionate about healing my anxious attachment style than I am about learning Spanish. I feel like I have a whole life to learn Spanish. Whereas right now, the anxious attachment, it was bad. It was ruining my relationships. It was ruining my days, my evenings. I didn't want to live a life of those huge emotions that could hit me at any point and totally knock me off guard. So it is about working out where's the biggest pain point for you here and starting that journey, prioritizing it and acknowledging that, yeah, it's going to take time. But like Maddie said, there is a life worth living. And I can sit here to attest to the fact that not only that, but you can change literally everything. Like the way that I react has changed, the way that I feel has changed. And even with the dog, now my boyfriend knows, okay, actually, even with the dog, I would have tried to suppress those emotions, right? I didn't want to cry in public. I didn't want to look silly. What did I do? I just cried on the side of the road. And I said to my boyfriend, I just need to cry right now. I'm really sad. What did my boyfriend do? He has learned that the best way for us to navigate this is to hold space for the emotion. He holds me when I cry, gives me a hug, puts his hand on my chest, because for me, there is nothing worse than crying alone. It just reminds me of like my dad or someone that would just watch me cry. So he knows to hold me. We have a little hug. I cry it out. It might take five seconds. The little tsunami comes out of my eyeballs. And then he knows solutions. Okay. How can we take you out of this space as well as you feeling it? Can I call the doctor? Can I call the vet? Maybe we can buy some tablets. Great. We found the vet. We're going to buy the tablets. I'm going to pay for the medication. We're going to go and we're going to go and help this dog. Sure. It's a small solution in the wider world. There's a million animals and human beings that need our help. But actually what I think is more poignant is that in that moment, I had the cry on the side of the road. He held me on the side of the road and then together we made solutions. And I would never have done that two years ago. I would have just suppressed that and then shouted at him for not knowing that I was upset. So... Yeah, I mean, just thank you. I've shared a lot of my own personal story today just to help, I think, put some of these things into context. You are the expert, and I love that you also live it too. I think there's nothing better than an expert that also feels it and doesn't sit in a therapy room as the cold, detracted, retracted practitioner. And I guess, like, my question for you is, do you have advice on people, like, finding the right therapist? Because I think, for me, my first therapist was a man. He was cold. He was nice, but he was... It felt like my dad, right? And then I found my second one, a woman, she was soft, she was gentle, and I could just cry. Do you have any thoughts on finding a practitioner that like doesn't throw gasoline on those wounds that you already have? It's so hard. It really is. Honestly, I always say ask a trusted friend because I don't let any of my friends like get a therapist unless it's they're specialized in something I don't know about. But like, unless I'm like, all right, I'll give this to you. I've like passed out referrals to dates. <laughs> it's like, I, I think it's really about getting a sense on the phone like I think everyone needs a screener call before I always do a screener call and it's like getting a sense of is this person gonna give me what I need and do they seem passionate about wanting to treat me like I know who I'm good at treating I know the kind of personality and presentation and I'll say to people on the phone I don't think I'm the right fit for you I could treat you I'm just not sure that I'm gonna be as helpful as I could be and I'd love for you to see X, Y, and Z. Whereas there's some people that call me and I'm like, we're going to have a great time. We're going to fuck shit up. Like, it's going to be perfect. So you want to feel the vibe with somebody. And at the same time, you need to give it time, right? So if you're like shopping around, I would give like a, several weeks with a therapist. And I would, if you can, if you're here, like practice giving feedback around what is or is not working for you, or at least take notes for yourself to understand what you might be looking for better. It's honestly really hard. I don't have any good advice other than those very amorphous things that I just said. No, I think that's perfect. My first therapist, I didn't even realize he was wrong until my boyfriend at the time said, honey, I really think you need a female therapist that's really soft and gentle that you can cry to rather than having a kind of cold, like shaved headed man with an earring who's giving you like hard energy. And I was like, 
oh, like I didn't really take that feedback on board until I then got the soft woman and I realized that the first therapy session, I just literally bawled my eyes out. And then I, like you, have recommended her to so many people that she is like 1 million percent full because of me and all my friends have seen her and people that like listen to the podcast have seen her and everyone is just like, oh, she's so amazing. The reason she's so amazing is because everyone just feels like they can cry and let it out. So I think I would leave people with that point is what do you need? What is holding you back? Is it that you don't want to feel or you feel too much and then you can find someone who can hold space for that? Anyway, I've just looked at the time, so we need to wrap this up. I wish we could keep going forever. There's still like a multitude of questions in my plan and document that I'm like, I didn't get to ask Maddie, but we will have to have you back another point. Hopefully, maybe one day we could do this in person if I can come via New York. You're in New York, right? Yes. Yes, I'm in New York City. Big Apple. So I'm going to link all of Maddie's details in the show notes, how you can find her, how you can speak with her, how you could maybe even work with her. She said that if she's not the right person for you or that she doesn't have space, she will find someone and pass you on, which I think is incredible. I think my biggest learning about finding a therapist is to have it recommended by someone who knows them personally, whether they've been working with them or they work alongside them. So yeah, we're going to link everything from Maddie in the show notes. And most of all, I just wanted to say thank you so much. We've covered some incredibly important stuff today and i'm so grateful for you this was a pleasure i'd love to if i didn't have patience for the rest of the afternoon i'd just stay on and talk to you because you made me cry six times and i'm like i'm doing my period also this is really incending me if you will so this was great thank you so much for the opportunity i appreciate it you're fabulous Oh, I love you. I really appreciate that. I'm also laughing because right before this call, I just walked out of the bathroom. I said to my boyfriend, I've got my period and we're about to do a podcast on big emotions. Like literally one second before this recording, I was like, oh, I've got my period. And then now I've sat down and I've wondered why we're so emotional. You've just said you've also got your period. So we're both just sat here like in our fields. But I'm glad we are. We're showing other people that it's okay to be in your fields, like no matter how they come up for you. You're the best. Thank you, Thank you so much. 